to preach this morning. And uh, as I get up to preach, I usually think, you know, they're going to think it's more of a lecture than a sermon because that's my vocation. I've been a professor of theology for 40 years to Christian college students and seminary students. And so when I give lectures, sometimes my students say, that sounded more like a sermon than a lecture. When I preach, sometimes I hear, that sounded more like a lecture than a sermon. So it's kind of a both. It's just a mixture of both. But I want to share with you today who the Holy Spirit is for us. And I'm going to be reading from the scriptures about the Holy Spirit from Jesus himself in the book of John, what he said about the Holy Spirit, and then talking with you about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit can do for us. So let's pray before I do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this Pentecost Sunday. It's a day that we set aside as Christians to celebrate one of the most momentous events in our Christian history. When our spiritual ancestors, Jesus' disciples, and others gathered in that upper room and experienced something so unexpected and so tremendous that it it eventually led to the world being turned upside down through their testimony through the witness that they took to the ends of the earth because your Holy Spirit filled them on that day of Pentecost. And I pray that this day of Pentecost here will be like that, that today we will all, those of us gathered in this sanctuary and those who are watching and listening on the live stream, open our lives to your Holy Spirit to fill us and to transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to begin with John, the fourth gospel, and what Jesus had to say about the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to read selections from chapters 14 through 16. And this is background to what I'm going to be sharing with you in my sermon today. So listen carefully as I read to you from the words of Jesus and then from the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he uh, leaves them, and they're very, very troubled about his leaving them. The disciples are really shaken up by the thought that he's going to leave them. And they're still very confused about who Jesus was. Was he a military messiah? Was he coming to usher in the new kingdom of Jerusalem and Israel to overthrow the Roman Empire and its occupation of Palestine, or what? They, did, they still didn't know. After three years of following him around, they still weren't sure. And then when he told them he was going to leave them, They were so shaken and disappointed and worried. So that's the background of what he's saying to them here. And he says, very truly I tell you, this is chapter 14 beginning with 12, very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Now that must have really worried and confused them, more confused than worried them. What? How can we do greater works than you've done? We've seen you raise the dead. How are you telling us now that that we'll be able to do greater works than that? What would be greater than that? So they must have been astounded at those words. And then a little further down, beginning with verse 16, and I will ask the Father, Jesus says, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot see or receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. 
So Jesus begins to talk to them about what's going to happen after he leaves them, that someone is going to come to be in them and with them, not necessarily to replace him, but to be another advocate, another comforter. And I'll talk about the meaning of that word a little bit later. So going to verse 15 and uh, 25, sorry, in chapter 15, uh, I'm getting confused, 14, verse 25. Jesus says, I have said these things to you while I am still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Now going over to chapter 15, verse 26. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Skipping down to verse 7 of chapter 16. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away. If I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer, about judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. And then verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And now let's go to the beginning of the book of Acts, which is the next book in the Bible after the Gospel of John. <clears throat> beginning with verse 4 of chapter 1. This is after Jesus' resurrection. He stayed with them for 40 days. He went around uh, Jerusalem and other places with them for 40 days. And while staying with them... He ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now backing up into the Gospel of John, just a couple of pages, chapter 20, verse 21. Before he left them, in ascension, before he ascended back to the Father, Jesus said to them, after what he just said to them, so this is almost the very last thing he said to them, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, now let's go back to the book of Acts and go to chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they, the disciples, were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. So I jumped back and forth a little bit because I wanted to make a point, and I'm going to come to that later in my sermon and talk about it a little bit more. And one is that before he promised their being filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now that's going to become very important later on in my sermon, so hold that in your mind as you can, but I'll remind you of it later. Today is Pentecost Sunday, and that's our Christian celebration of the birth of the church. And there's one depiction of it. The disciples in the upper room receiving the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Not receiving the Holy Spirit, they already had the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathed on them before he ascended and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is a different experience of the Holy Spirit. This is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So we read about that in Acts 2, and you know the story. Jesus' disciples and others are gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem after Jesus' death, after his resurrection and after his ascension. He's gone from them. He had told them to go there and wait to be endued with power from on high that would then make them witnesses to him throughout the whole world. And as they were gathered there, celebrating the Jewish feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon them like a rushing mighty wind, and tongues of flame appeared over their heads. Then they spoke in tongues, foreign languages unknown to them. Apparently, people from the whole area gathered from all over the Roman Empire, Jews gathered there to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, flocked to this event, to this upper room, to hear this phenomenon. And they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached in their own languages. They thought the disciples were drunk, Acts tells us, which indicates that they were very excited. I don't know if they look as excited there as they must have been because people thought they were drunk. So that's the story of Pentecost in a nutshell. And on that day, the Christian church was born. It didn't exist before that. So what happened then in that upper room that birthed the Christian church? Well, Christian tradition tells us that what happened was the Holy Spirit was for the first time given to people as an indwelling gift that would remain. Not come and go, but remain. The Holy Spirit, who before had been a somewhat elusive presence and power of God descending on prophets, suddenly came to dwell within Jesus' followers as Jesus had promised. We often talk about the church as God's people and as followers of Jesus, but we often neglect to mention that the church is also the temple of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling place of God's Spirit. And beginning on this day of Pentecost, in around 33 AD, God's own spirit came to indwell, to unite, to energize, and send forth the people of God, the church, into the whole world. So let me move to a question, and that is, who is this Holy Spirit character anyway? The Holy Spirit often seems elusive, vague, kind of ethereal to many Christians, One theologian published a book about the Holy Spirit entitled, The Shy Member of the Trinity. And I think I have another uh, slide you can move to now. 
the shy member of the Trinity. His point in the book was that the Holy Spirit does not want our attention. This theologian said, the Holy Spirit's only role is to glorify Jesus Christ and make him present to us and in us if we believe in him, if we are his people. But his only real work is to glorify Jesus. He points to Jesus. He doesn't point to himself. Well, I'm not so sure about the Holy Spirit being the shy member of the Trinity. I agree that the Holy Spirit does seek to glorify Jesus. That's clearly in the Bible. Jesus said it himself in the words that I read to you. But I suspect that theologian's tongue-in-cheek description of the Holy Spirit reflects many Christians' hesitancy about the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said earlier, I taught mostly Baptist theologian, uh, theology students for about 40 years, and most of them told me they grew up in churches where the Holy Spirit was talked about, if at all, in hushed tones and with some anxiety. Whenever I taught an elective course on the Holy Spirit, which I did several times, it filled up immediately on the day of registration because those students were hungry to know more about the Holy Spirit. When I asked them why they didn't already know much about the Holy Spirit, they told me honestly that their pastors and parents didn't talk about the Holy Spirit much at all. And when I asked why, why that is the case, they said, we don't want to be like those Pentecostals. Now, many of them didn't know, though I told them later, I grew up Pentecostal from birth to about age 25 when I converted to being Baptist. And I won't go into all the reasons why I did that, why that happened. I will only say that to this day I consider myself, and listen to this, an Anabapticostal. An Anabapticostal. That's a hybrid of Anabaptist, Baptist, and Pentecostal. Anabaptist being Mennonite, Baptist, and Pentecostal. I wish Pentecostals were a little more cautious about the Holy Spirit's manifestations and that Baptists and Anabaptists were a little more open to the Holy Spirit's manifestations. I've often looked for the middle ground between the two sides, but rarely found it. So let's go back to the question that I started with a few minutes ago. Who is this Holy Spirit? In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is hardly distinguished from Yahweh God, the covenant Lord of Israel. Yet there are hints here and there, especially in the prophets, that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person of God. But I'm not sure we would know that from the Old Testament alone. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament times came and went, occasionally descending on a prophet to reveal truth or to work a miracle. But no prophet before John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit. The New Testament has so much to say about the Holy Spirit, it's impossible to even touch on it all in one sermon. Sometimes I wonder why anyone would ever think that the Holy Spirit is the shy member of the Trinity, given the prominent role the Holy Spirit has in the New Testament, and really throughout all of church history after then. Jesus promised his disciples that after he left them, he would send them another comforter and another advocate. Just two words for the same being, comforter, advocate. Sometimes in English translations of the Bible, helper is the word used. He said this other comforter, advocate, helper would be with them and in them to represent himself to them and to lead them into all the truth. 
The Greek word in the New Testament translated in our English Bibles, comforter or advocate or helper, the Greek word is paraclete. This paraclete, as Jesus called him, the promised Holy Spirit, is mentioned often in John's Gospel, especially in those portions I read from chapters 14 through 16. The Holy Spirit plays a prominent role in the Acts of Apostles. The the Apostle Paul, in his letters, mentions the Holy Spirit very often and urges us, God's people, to be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, too, that the Holy Spirit helps us pray, for we do not always know what to pray for or how to pray. Paul mentions several gifts of the Holy Spirit and fruit of the Spirit. So there's no shortage of talk about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is not the shy member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is very active. And yet, for all that, for some reason, non-Pentecostal, non-charismatic evangelicals and other Christians have tended to shy away from talking about the Holy Spirit. We sing about the Holy Spirit, but sometimes we're a little reluctant to talk about the Holy Spirit. I think we need to overcome our fear of being thought of as Pentecostals because they really are our spiritual and theological cousins, even though I don't consider myself Pentecostal anymore. And we need to rediscover the Holy Spirit. So that's really my main idea here today is let us rediscover the Holy Spirit. I'm sure that would be Jesus's and Paul's message to us. It's my message to you on this Pentecost Sunday. Let us rediscover the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to do two things. I'm going to give kind of a Bible study talk about the Holy Spirit. Call it theology if you want to. That's a scary word I know for a lot of people. But I'm going to talk about who the Holy Spirit is. And then I'm going to talk about the Holy Spirit's functions. What the Holy Spirit does. So first of all, about who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Most of us know that, but even some good, God-fearing, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians are confused about who the Holy Spirit is. The Bible really contains no theology of the Holy Spirit, but when you put together all that the Bible says, there's only one reasonable conclusion to draw, and that is the Holy Spirit is God, because the Holy Spirit does things only God can do. So the Holy Spirit is God. But second, the Holy Spirit is a person. And I really want to emphasize this. The Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force or power, like electricity. Throughout my teaching career, I often uh, detected that many of my students thought of the Holy Spirit as kind of a power, and that to get in touch with the Holy Spirit, you had to plug something into the wall, and it's kind of like electricity, and then the Holy Spirit would come into you through a special kind of prayer. But the Holy Spirit for them was a, an impersonal thing, a force or a power. But that just cannot be true. Again, when you put together all that the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, there's only one reasonable conclusion to draw, and that is that the Holy Spirit is personal. So I began to forbid my students from referring to the Holy Spirit as it. Now, I've held back from doing that here, and I will try to keep holding back. But every time I hear someone say it, referring to the Holy Spirit, I want to say, wait, no, say he, or even she. Because in the Hebrew, the word for spirit, ruach, is feminine. I'm sure you didn't know that. 
In the New Testament, in Greek, the word for spirit is pneuma, and that's neuter. So that's sometimes why we refer to the Holy Spirit as it, because even the Bible does that sometimes, because it's a neuter noun, pneuma. But setting all that aside, the Holy Spirit has to be personal because the New Testament talks about the Holy Spirit speaking. It talks about the Holy Spirit comforting. It talks about the Holy Spirit convicting. And it talks about the Holy Spirit being grieved. Those are all things only a person can experience and do. So the Holy Spirit cannot be an impersonal force or power. Third, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, of the Trinity. Again, putting together all that the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, the only reasonable conclusion is that the Holy Spirit is the third person of God, alongside Father and Son, and has been from all eternity. So, concluding this portion of my sermon, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, equal in every way with the Father and the Son, but sent to us by the Father through the Son. That's the orthodox and biblical Christian doctrine of who the Holy Spirit is, in a nutshell. So next time you hear yourself saying of the Holy Spirit, it, stop and correct yourself and say, or he or she. Like every other biblical subject, the Holy Spirit has been the topic of much controversy throughout church history. Possibly another reason why many Christians shy away from giving the Spirit attention is because of all these controversies. For example, the Eastern Orthodox churches, like the Greek Orthodox, and the Roman Catholic Church divided from each other, and to this day cannot have communion with each other, over the question whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son or only from the Father. I won't go into all of that. That's a whole lecture in and of itself, and many books have been written about it. And that seems speculative to most of us. How can we answer that? Pentecostals, much, much later in the early 20th century, broke away from Methodists and other Pentecostal, or sorry, other Protestant groups over whether the Holy Spirit's supernatural gifts are still available to Christians today or whether those supernatural gifts ceased when the Bible was completed. So the Reformers, Luther and Calvin and many others, even John Wesley, founder of the Methodist tradition, others said those supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, such as speaking in tongues, gifts of healing, miracles, prophecy, and so forth, all that ceased when the Bible was finished, when it was completely written. That's called cessationism, the cessation of the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. Pentecostals broke away from that and said, no, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still available for people today and always have been and always will be until that which is perfect has come, which refers to Jesus and his return. But I don't want to dwell on controversies about the Holy Spirit. They interest me, and I can talk about them endlessly, but they aren't the subject for Pentecost Sunday. Today, we should focus together on the special function of the Holy Spirit among us and in us, and not on debates and controversies. So let's go to the next slide. So how does the New Testament speak to us about the Holy Spirit? What are the functions of the Holy Spirit that we should know about and seek to have working in us and among us? So I have a series of words that all begin with P. Now, when I was being taught homiletics, that's the science of preaching, I was told in college and seminary that you had to have three points, and they all had to start with the same letter. 
Well, I couldn't quite get it down to just three points, but they do all start with the same letter. I have several of them. First of all, the Holy Spirit is promise. The Holy Spirit is promise. Jesus promised that his leaving the disciples, a thought that deeply discouraged them, was actually a good thing. It was a good thing because he would send someone else to be his presence within and among them, carrying on his mission. Now, right there is a mystery how the Holy Spirit can be someone else, another advocate, another paraclete or helper, and yet be the spirit of Jesus Christ. So Christians have worked on this for centuries and ultimately come around to saying, Jesus is with us and in us through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is God's presence within us and among us, carrying on his mission through us. In other words, his no longer being bodily present, Jesus no longer being bodily present among them was not, he said, something to be dreaded. His leaving them was not something to be dreaded. The coming of the Spirit from him would more than take his place. He even said that they would do greater things than he did because of the Holy Spirit, whom he would send to be in them and with them. Now, backing up from Jesus' promise that we read in John 14 through 16, we see that the Hebrew prophet Joel, hundreds of years before Jesus, promised that in the last days, the Spirit would fill God's people in a special way never experienced before. The disciple and apostle Peter interpreted the day of Pentecost, which we're celebrating today, as the fulfillment of that promise that God sent through the prophet Joel. So first of all, the Holy Spirit is promise. That's one of his functions, is to fulfill the promise of Jesus and also to promise us that we can do greater things than Jesus did if we let him do them through us. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is paraclete. This is the special function or role Jesus gave to the Holy Spirit. In that culture of that day and time, paraclete was someone who went with a friend to court. So if you were given a subpoena to come to court and appear before a judge, instead of taking a lawyer, which you might not be able to afford, you would take a friendly advocate or helper, someone to stand alongside you and plead your cause. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as another paraclete. So that indicates that the Holy Spirit is like Jesus, fulfilling the same function of mediator, friend, and helper. But the difference is that the Holy Spirit dwells within us if we are Jesus' people, people who through faith embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Third, then, the Holy Spirit is presence. Unlike in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit came and went, since the day of Pentecost, all who truly followed Jesus, who have put their faith in him and embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior, have the Holy Spirit as our possession. Or better put, we are possessed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sent to us by Christ takes possession of us. The Spirit is God's personal presence within us, possessing us. Fourth, the Holy Spirit is power. Jesus promised the disciples the power they would need to be his witnesses throughout the world, and they did go and turn the world upside down through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is a person. The Spirit is also God's power 
in us and among us, a personal power. Now, Pentecostals, who I grew up among, specialize in this dimension of the Holy Spirit. When I was growing up, we often sang a song you may have never heard of, The power, the power gives victory over sin and purity within. The power, the power, the power they had at Pentecost. We believed in that. We believe that the Holy Spirit can give us power. Now, there's no reason why non-Pentecostals cannot have this same power. Power to do what? To live Christ-like lives? To show forth the grace of God? To point people to Jesus? To be the people of God in the world? So power is something that the Holy Spirit has and gives. Fifth, the Holy Spirit is passion. Passion. Here is where we non-Pentecostals get a bit nervous about the Holy Spirit. We do not want to be emotional in church. We want our services and our lives to be predictable. Doing all things decently and in order is a good thing, but it can be deadly dull. Now, as a Scandinavian, I know that it's possible to have passion without showing it outwardly, emotionally. But I also believe, from the New Testament and from personal experience, that passion that never manifests itself outwardly is rare. If we have passion, it will sometimes show itself. Let me tell you a story to illustrate this. When I first moved to Waco, Texas, to teach at Baylor University in 1999, my colleague Terry York church musician and hymn writer, took my wife and me to the annual Baylor University Homecoming Hymn Sing at First Baptist Church in Waco. Most of the approximately 500 people there were older folks. I was proud to be sitting next to Terry when the song leader had to sing his hymn, Worthy of Worship, Worthy of Praise. But I was a little disappointed in the lack of enthusiasm throughout the singing of that great hymn. I attributed it to the fact that most of the people were elderly, like I am now. Then, however, when at the end of the hymn sing, the organ struck up the Baylor theme song, that good old Baylor line, those 500 elderly people suddenly came alive and stood singing loudly and clawing the air with genuine enthusiasm and passion. And I was stunned because I thought they were all asleep. Why do we think it's a good thing to demonstrate passion outwardly, emotionally at a sporting event or while singing the good old Baylor line or whatever is the theme song of your alma mater, but not when we sing hymns and gospel songs about our Savior's love and mercy and about God's glory? The Holy Spirit's presence should show, at least occasionally, in passionate excitement and enthusiasm about our God and his love and mercy. But more importantly than emotional displays, as natural as they are when we are inwardly moved by the Spirit, is the passion the Holy Spirit brings into us for the kingdom of God, God's will being done on earth as in heaven. So emotion isn't really the point, although I think it can be a good thing. The main point of passion is an inward passion for the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit gives us passion for the lost and dying and for peace and justice. 
Sixth, the Holy Spirit is productive. Productive. Producing edifying works and fruits among God's people. The New Testament lists two special things the Holy Spirit produces when the Spirit is present within us and among us. And the first is, or are, the gifts of the Spirit. And the second are the fruits of the Spirit. We non-Pentecostals tend to focus, focus more on the fruit of the Spirit than on the gifts of the Spirit. But Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and you know them, love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, patience, and etc. And these are the evidences of the Spirit's presence within us. Wherever the Spirit is present, these characteristics, the fruit of the Spirit, should be evident in a supernatural way. What that means is that producing the fruit of the Spirit does not happen simply by turning over a new leaf. The fruit of the Spirit is beyond our natural capacity to produce. Only the Holy Spirit can produce the fruit of the Spirit as God means for it to be in our lives. Paul lists the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. Faith, prophecy, healing, speaking in tongues, words of knowledge and wisdom, and so forth. Like the fruit of the Spirit, these are supernatural, not natural abilities. Left to ourselves without the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit, we would never have these gifts. Now, let me be clear about something. There are people who do not have the Holy Spirit who have what look like some of the fruit of the Spirit and some of the gifts of the Spirit. But without the Holy Spirit, what they have is not the same as the fruit and gifts Paul mentions. These fruits and gifts come from above, not from our own human nature. Now, as Christians, we hopefully want to display the fruit of the Spirit and practice at least some of the gifts of the Spirit, but we can't have them without the Holy Spirit's help. I said, as I said, we can't become truly loving, truly loving of people not like us at all without the Spirit's supernatural presence and power. We can't pray for people to be healed and have them healed without the Spirit's supernatural presence and power. So let's go to the next slide, please. Finally then, if we want these evidences of the Spirit's presence and power in our lives and in our church, what must we do? The New Testament very prominently talks about something we non-Pentecostals tend to ignore, the infilling of the Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, the disciples were already saved. Now, let's get that clear. The disciples were not saved on the day of Pentecost. They were already saved. They were already people of God. They were already followers of Jesus. They already had the Holy Spirit. What did they lack that they waited for and received on that day? According to one gospel that I read to you from, John, they had already received the Holy Spirit. Before he ascended, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't just the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling them that they received on the day of Pentecost. They already had that. Later, throughout the Acts of the Apostles, people were, who were already believers in Jesus Christ received something more, something new, something more of the Spirit's personal presence and power called the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And I believe this is an experience every Christian should have, not just once, but as often as necessary and possible. The Holy Spirit indwells us when we first come to Christ in repentance and faith, what we call conversion. Immediately at that moment, we are forgiven and born again. 
Immediately, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. When we gather for worship, the Holy Spirit is present among us. But the New Testament indicates something else that can and probably should happen. Our prayer lives and our worship should receive fresh infillings of the Spirit's power, bringing increasing degrees of the fruit and gifts of the Spirit. So my question to you today is, why just settle for being forgiven and born again? Why not be transformed? A fair reading of the New Testament pushes us to realize that although the Holy Spirit is already within us and among us, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit always can fall on us with fresh infillings, transforming our lives both individually and collectively. When that happens, the fruit of the Spirit grows and the gifts of the Spirit open up. And the result is holiness of life, power to witness, and mutual blessing of each other and of God and the whole world. Now, does that make you nervous? It should. It makes me nervous. Because the Holy Spirit is never predictable or safe. The Holy Spirit shatters the status quo, breaking us out of our complacency and lifting us up to new heights of spiritual fullness and blessing if we are open to that. So my challenge to you today is to be open to that. Ask Jesus to fill you with his Holy Spirit, just like the disciples were on the first day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father God, Brother Jesus,